Good morning. Today is a special day for me. I have my granddaughter Layla with me. I think her grandma would be proud to see her here. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, Call to Worship is today's from Psalm 51. For the director of music, son of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bethesda, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my inequity, and cleanse me from, from my sins. For I for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and, uh, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and, and, justify, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire the truth, in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in innermost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones of uh, you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my, from my sins and blot out my inequity. Create me a pure, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take me, or take me uh, your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Good morning. Today's scripture is found in Jonah chapter 3. This is the Old Testament portion of the scripture reading. We find Jonah fresh from his trip through the belly of the whale, or the big fish. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to, it, to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Reading from Luke 15, 1-7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now I have the uh, job of pulling all of these things together into some kind of order. Our psalm, as was read, follows an incident in which David has been called on his sin. David exhibits what we would call an attitude of repentance or a sense of turning. He can't undo what has been done. He can only appeal to God's grace and forgiveness and turn from that act. He can't undo the murder of Uriah. He can't undo Bathsheba's pregnancy. He can't undo the damage that's been done to the families involved. The consequence of his sin goes on. And, by the way, as Nathan comes to him and tells him what's going to happen to his own household, he can't undo that either. It's a terrible thing that David has done. And the consequences will be real. But he can turn from his attitude. He can turn from his thought of evil. He can turn from the sin he practiced into a different path. It's a choice he's going to make. And part of it involves transformation. The kind of transformation that you and I find impossible to do among ourselves or for ourselves. It's twofold. It's the turning of an unresponsive heart, a heart of stone, into a heart that can respond, a heart of flesh. That's a miracle. And it's a gift. And the second part is once that miracle has occurred, that we're able to respond, making the choice with our newly formed hearts of flesh to follow not after our own desires, but to follow after the will and way of God. That's the two parts. David wants to have a responsive heart. That's his heart for God. And having made catastrophic choices, he wants to turn from those choices back to the grace and love of the God who gave him a responsive heart to begin with. I want to have a heart after God's own heart. And my best read on what that means, my best understanding at this point, standing in this place now, is that a heart after God's heart is a heart 
of flesh willing to pursue the heart of God. That's it. Nothing in there about arrival. Nothing in there about perfection. Nothing in there about falls and redemption. It's all going to happen. But the heart is for God. Our second story is one of a prophet who decided his assignment wasn't for him. He was a true prophet. I love stories of true prophet. Balaam is a great story as well. But John is a fabulous story because more of us are like him than not. You want me to go to L.A.? you got to be kidding. Why, there are all manner of people down there. And let's tick off our prejudices. Tick, 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 tick. Really? I understand the streets aren't safe down there. God says, i got three million people there. I love them. Go. It's not easy, is it? So Jonah gets this call, go to Assyria, their enemies to begin with. Now go to the biggest town in Assyria. It takes three days just to walk across its breadth. I tell you, that makes Oshkosh look like a little picnic area somewhere. And Richard, we did some walking there, didn't we? Oh, did we do some walking? That's little. Nineveh was a big, big city. A lot of people. Isn't it interesting? No news stations, no television, no cameras or news conferences or presses, no little YouTube video to insert and put online, no telephones. He walks through the streets and says something that if it happened in my neck of the woods, I would be tempted to just watch until he was out of sight to make sure he didn't come vandalize my property. I would assume he was crazy. Repent, for in 40 days the Lord is going to destroy Nineveh. Not a very willing or happy participant in this message. If I were a Ninevite, I would say, who's the Lord? What does repent mean? And why 40 days? I think there's something about ancient Near Eastern cultures that's more connected than we know. They seem to have a sense of who the Lord was. When that call to repent from sin and wickedness came, they seemed to understand that they had a problem with violence in their city. When the king got word that there was a stranger in their midst and that he was proclaiming God's wrath, he didn't send a guard out to have him hanged from the nearest pole, although that is certainly what Jonah expected. And the people weren't mocking and cruel either. The Apostle Paul was treated worse. Instead, a decree came forth that everybody should fast and pray and take off anything that would smack of pride and cover themselves in the lowliest of cloths, sackcloth. It was like a national holiday for Nineveh declared. And it says they turned from their evil ways. 
Isn't that beautiful? They repented. God changed his mind. Forty days came and went, and there was no destruction. But I want you to keep in mind the fasting and praying, the 40 days. I want you to keep in mind the notion of repentance. Because we fast forward to Jesus' ministry. He has not yet really begun his ministry. He's led by the Spirit after his baptism into the wilderness where he will be for 40 days and 40 nights to be tested by the devil. And the devil is there. Appealing to his power, appealing to his position, appealing to his pride, and appealing to his humanity. Christ fasts and prays, relying not on his own strength, but on the strength of God his Father. Fast forward to Christian times. You have this very weird thing, foreign to Adventists, and some of you were raised Catholic, so it's not foreign to you. But this idea of a Shrove Tuesday slash Mardi Gras, in which it seems Dionysius herself is embraced and all pleasure is sought, followed by Ash Wednesday, which the forehead is marked by observant uh, Catholics and some main lines with ash. And it's an obscure source, this ash, by the way. The ash is taken from the palm fronds that were burned the year before on Palm Sunday. Pretty interesting. Palm Sunday, of course, refers to the season in the Christian calendar just before the crucifixion in which Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and is hailed as king of the Jews. They're singing Hosanna and flashing palm fronds and putting their cloaks out in front of the donkey as he goes by. It's his royal reception into his city, the city of David, Jerusalem. Immediately following Ash Wednesday, the inauguration of Lent takes place. We usually think of it as giving up something. And that's often how it's understood and lived in Catholic and other circles. What will I give up? What is going to be my fast or my discipline? And Adventists have kind of distanced themselves from all of this, and perhaps with with reason. But I wonder sometimes if we haven't missed something rich and important. And I'm going to suggest three things. Not that you have to be observant in the sense of Shrove Tuesday, Ash Wednesday. I'm not going to be here Wednesday anointing your head with ash. It's not, not within the ministerial manual for the Adventist church. But... Let's think about the practice. Let's think about the season for a minute and what these stories that we've come to so far might help us with. David engages repentance, the pursuit of a new heart. Jonah preaches a destruction coming in 40 days and people 
by humbling themselves and ceasing from their violence and turning from their wickedness, change the heart and mind of God. Christ faces his demons for 40 days and 40 nights, is tested and tempted, and comes out on the other side, not weak, but ready for three years of intense, challenging, difficult, contested, risky ministry. He's got the connection that he needs with his father firmly established. He has developed control over his own needs and impulses, and he's understood the devices of the devil and been able to resist away. Jesus has nothing to turn from. He has no repentance to make in this time. But between repentance and the discipline of turning toward something, we find two 40-day and 40-night periods embedded with something that we could all use. We could all use a season of turning from our wickedness such as it is. We could all use a season of embracing new disciplines that bring strength and character into our Christian lives. Jesus then tells a story while his ministry is underway in Luke. It was read a minute ago. Don't you know this man eats with sinners and tax collectors, unsavory types? Don't you know that he's guilty by association? Don't you know he's tainted? Don't you know he's been to Los Angeles and Nineveh? We don't want anything to do with him. Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you a couple stories. Shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders away. What does he do? He goes to find the sheep. Woman loses a dowry coin. She lights a lamp. She sweeps her whole house. She walks the perimeter. She traces her path to the market and back. She does everything she can until she finds it. And then she calls all of her friends. Yes, they had AT&T back then too. It's an ancient monopoly. And says, I found my lost coin. Rejoice with me. But the best story of them all is the story of a young man tired of his older brother's presence. And you know how older brothers can be. Domineering. Who knows? And he was tired of his father's rules. He wasn't going to be the main inheritor anyway. He wasn't the oldest son. And he didn't feel like sticking around for the work that he had to do either. So he made an unusual request. Father, give me my inheritance now. Let's pretend you've died. I have a life to live. And the father says, okay, let me work on that. And he pulls together his share of the inheritance and gives it to the boy. And the boy goes off to a far-off land, 
boy is not skilled in money management. The boy doesn't know anything about people and human nature. The boy doesn't have any sense of when to say no. He can't discern who his friends are for real and who his friends are for money. Like many teenagers, he's rebellious. Like many young people, he wants to experiment with what's available out there. And he finds himself in considerable trouble, eventually friendless, homeless, moneyless, helpless, and far away from home. He has messed it up big. And he's a, one of the only Jews he knows tending pigs. The most unclean of all animals. And worse, he finds himself hungry to eat what they're eating. And he says, oh, I've got to get a hold of myself here. I would be better off a slave to my brother and my father than here. Now, I want you to pay attention to the tone of that turning. Okay? The words. He doesn't say, oh, I get it. My father was really a wise guy. Oh, I get it. I need to be a supportive younger brother. He doesn't say any of that. He just comes to the conclusion that being a slave would be better than where he is. And he decides to head home on the assumption that maybe he can find work as a slave in his father's house. That's dark. It's not very noble. But he goes. The father has a far different view of things. Daily watching. Daily hoping. There is a son. Broken down a bit, but there's no mistaking him. It's looking shabby. Shameful. But there's no mistaking him. And like every good parent, he pursues that child. Running from the house to meet him. He's filthy. He's probably sick. He's probably got more parasites than you can shake a stick at. And he's probably um, needing a bath in eucalyptus oil. And the father doesn't care about any of it. Throws his arms around this boy. Knocks him down, kisses him, welcomes him home. The son has a rehearsed speech. Well, Father, you know, I've, I've not done the right thing. And if you could just make me a slave in your household. Father orders the servants to clean him up. Put a ring on his finger. A ring of belonging. A family seal. Put a cloak over him. Cover him. It's looking bad. He needs to look better. And let's fatten this kid up. Time to slaughter the fattened calf. Time to celebrate. That which was lost is found. Repentance doesn't always take really eloquent forms. It means turning around and going home. 
Do you hear me? It means turning around and going home. And the Father welcomes you. So what does an Adventist have to do with Lent? Everything. Let this be your season of turning around. Let this be your season of engaging the disciplines that will give you the strength to minister. Let this be the season of going to the Father and going home. And in due season, we'll celebrate the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in whom we've died and been resurrected to life now and evermore. So, Lord, may this be a season of turning from and a season of engaging and embracing, a season of looking forward, a season of remembrance, that we may be more fully and completely yours, that we may turn from our sins and that which holds us back, that we might serve you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.